Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'm continuing my verse-by-verse study through this wonderful book, the book of Revelation, and today I find myself in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And this is the subject that I have been wanting to hit. This is the subject that is a, a very, very important subject as far as Christians are concerned. It is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know what title I'm actually going to put on this message, but it is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's like we would never get here. Then when I'm here, uh, I look back and think, my goodness, it just seemed to go so fast. So Revelation chapter 19, I want to read just a few verses for you. I encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to follow along with me as I read this, uh, because it is one of those passages that, that we need to become very familiar with, especially in the days and times in which we are living now. Revelation chapter 19, I'll begin reading in verse 11, and the Word of God reads like this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a tremendous passage. It's one that I, many, many Christians are very, very familiar with. But it's amazing to me how many Christians I do talk to that are not familiar with where to find the story or the picture or the passage that deals with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the culmination of God's plan that His people have been waiting for throughout all of redemptive history. This is that which has been anticipated since the very beginning. This is the time when fully the serpent's head is bruised, and that takes, takes us back to Genesis 3. Verse 15, where that was first prophesied, this is the time when the scepter is given to the true king, and that takes us back to Genesis chapter 49. And so I'm sure that uh, many of you are going to be very familiar with this passage, but our, our text then is monumental in the history of redemption. Again, it is the culminating event. It is the final great event. It is the end of a whole saga, really. The rest that happens in the kingdom, in the end of the age, the satanic rebellion at the end of the 1,000 years is really a sort of a final, uh, as one writer puts it, a mop-up operation. This is that which establishes the permanent end of man's day and establishes the eternal beginning of the day of God and the day of Christ when he will reign forever and ever. So, with that being said, this is the culmination of all of Scripture, all of the Christian hope, all of the hope of all of the saints of all ages. I know for myself, speaking individually, I was saved, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ years ago under the teaching of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I know many, many have been uh, just like me. This is the final culminating battle of, 
uh, it's one calls it a battle. It's really not a battle, but it's where the absolute total sovereignty in heaven will begin to rule forever and ever through a mighty kingdom that will be set up literally and physically here on the earth. And we're going to touch that uh, here real soon. But you know, it's amazing to me that when we kind of contemplate this, as of course many Christians do, and I'm hearing it more and more and more, is this the uh, second coming? Is this the season? Uh, I, I know more and more people are starting to ask the question, are we in the tribulation? And of course we have addressed that we are not in the tribulation. The tribulation will not start until the church has been called out. But when we think and contemplate, as, as many Christians do, uh, the, the kind of affection that we get caught up in uh, with the earth and the world, it, it kind of it, it, it keeps us from really getting in and soaking ourselves into the second coming. It's almost as if many Christians would rather it not come right now. I know that when I was doing a prophecy in conferences, uh, singles conferences uh, in, with several different churches in, uh, while I was living in Atlanta and a member of another church, that uh, one, one of the things that I had with a friend of mine that was uh, with me in, in Atlanta, and uh, we, we were going uh, to this conference, and in fact, I had asked him to do this little uh, speech thing he was, had worked up uh, in the prophecy, uh, not, not of which he was in, involved in the prophecy, but he wanted to, to say a few words. But anyway, he told me, he said, you know, I, I really, it's, it's kind of depressing to think that it could happen so soon I said, why is that? He said, well, you know, there's a lot of things I'd still like to do. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready for the rapture. And I think uh, that is a, a picture of so many people. If we were honest and we looked into our hearts and the question would add, were asked, would you rather leave this world and be taken to glory? Would you rather that Jesus come or would you rather keep enjoying this life until a much later time? And most would say that that would be a hard question and hard-pressed to honestly say. Well, I think the way the Scripture presents it, and when you get involved in the looking at this, it, it seems to be crystal clear that I would, in a split second, give up everything in this world for the presence of Christ. You hope we'd feel that way, but I'm not sure that the world doesn't have such a grip on us, such a satisfying with this world and the pleasures and the and the materialism that we, we just soak ourselves into. We don't love as appearing as we should. We become comfortable and enamored by the things of this world. But I want to just share some things with you from this scripture today. I'm not sure we're going to have uh, a whole lot of time to cover too much, but hopefully I can get into it. And as I've told you, that as we get into this section, beginning in verse 11 of Revelation 19, and we go through Revelation chapter 20 and into chapter 21, we're going to uh, be spending some time. Because I want to share uh, so much of what I have uh, seen from the Scriptures over the years. I have been studying this and looking at this for over 30 years uh, and it is still as, uh, as rewarding to teach it now as it was 30 years ago. But I want to give you this. And if you have a pencil, you can kind of write this down to show you the importance of this particular teaching, this particular passage, this particular subject, which is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, how important it is in the pages of Scripture. Mark this down. 
a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages. That's 1,575 Old Testament passages alone refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've had people say, well, the second coming is really not taught in the, uh, in the Old Testament. It's the first coming. Well, they haven't really read the Old Testament. I'm telling you, 1,575 Old Testament prophecies referring to the second coming. There are approximately 8,000 verses in the New Testament, and 330 of those, or about one out of every 25 verses, directly refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, next to the subject of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no subject is more often mentioned than the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned, the second coming of Christ is mentioned eight times. So that's an eight-to-one ratio uh, speaking in favor of the second coming over the first coming. In fact, really, that's the reason that the the people uh, of Israel were so confused about Christ coming as they were looking at a whole different way of seeing the Messiah coming, uh, and they did not recognize his first coming. They were more aware of things in, related to his second coming and the presentation of the kingdom. They were not aware of the first coming, and so this might explain that. And actually, to show you the importance again in, in Scripture, the Lord himself refers to his return, his coming, 21 times. And you take all the times he taught, 21 times, and over 50 times we're exhorted to be ready for that great event. I think you could say beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is what we would call a major doctrine, a major theme throughout all the pages of Scripture. Clearly, because so much biblical testimony. And if we're going to attribute biblical testimony, amount of it, you remember now the difference between a, a, a major prophet and a minor prophet. I remember the first time I heard this in seminary, I, I was shocked because I did not really know why prophets were called major or why prophets were called minor. I just thought they were less important. But it's not true. It's the amount of material they wrote. Like the major prophets would be Isaiah and Ezekiel. Uh, the minor prophets would be would be Amos and Obadiah and some of these. So it's the amount of Scripture. And if that's true, which it is, this is a major doctrine throughout all of Scripture because of how much space is given to it. Clearly, I think we can see that because of so much biblical testimony, we can be certain that Jesus will come again. I think if there's one fact that ought to come from such a major Bible doctrine, it would be that the promise of God demands it. He says it in his word. And so it would have to come, uh, to, we would have to be conclusive in this thought. It would have to be, well, if he said it in his word, uh, and, when, and when we know that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, so that's the same thing as God saying he is coming, uh, and God who, who cannot lie, promised that the Messiah would come and that he would establish a kingdom and he would have a throne and that that throne would be in Jerusalem and from that throne he would rule the world and we know that has never happened. So, listen to this. It must be true. God's word demands that it be true. In fact, the whole uh, 
Word of God mentioned. You can you can find so many verses of Scripture that talk about this. Psalm two would be one. Daniel chapter seven uh, referred to. Zechariah chapter fourteen. Uh, Matthew chapter twenty. Whether well, it would be ridiculous to try to repeat all the scriptures, especially after I just told you how many verses are in the Bible. But the so the the promise of God or the Word of God itself demands that it it be true and that it is going to happen. Furthermore, there's a guarantee from the Holy Spirit that demands it. The Holy Spirit it was indeed uh, the one who inspired the New Testament writers to write that promise. And so really, the very credibility of the Holy Spirit himself demands that this was true. It is the Holy Spirit in us who is the guarantee of our down payment. And so it's the Holy Spirit writing in the scriptures that is the guarantee of the soon return of Christ. And so the promise of God demands his Christ return. The statements of Jesus demand his return. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit demands his return. And so we can see it is a major doctrine of Scripture. And it doesn't take, take very long to realize that God has a plan. It is a plan that involves his return and in the establishment of his glorious kingdom. You can take just reading through the book of Revelation as a casual reader just reading chapter 1 all the way through it even to this point and you see there seems to be an order about this there seems to be something that uh, is that the second coming is going to follow and it, it is something that the second coming will follow it is it follows the tribulation period uh, and, and so that becomes very clear and evident in the scriptures and so we can see this and we know that uh, the, the teachings on this are, are there. It's just so many people do not spend a lot of time on this. I have actually served in churches and on staff under pastors uh, where I was the assistant pastor or one of the assistant pastors and uh, the pastor himself, uh, I know the first church out of seminary, uh, just did not believe it the way I believed it. He said, wait a minute, I'm going to let you teach it. But I do not believe anything that you believe anything that you believe is the way you teach it. I do not believe there will be a kingdom. I think I, I said so. You're an amillennialist. He said right. I said well. And he of course he didn't want to. Uh, he wouldn't let me ask him any questions. So, but anyway, he allowed me to teach it. And in fact, I ended up writing the curriculum for the whole Sunday school on the second coming of Christ, and, and actually using the Book of Revelation. But for us that are Christians that our everyday Joe Blow Christian, we are those who love his appearing. That's what Second Timothy tells us. We are those who wait for his coming. This is the Christian hope, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, saints all through the New Testament, all through the church age have been looking for this and waiting for this moment. And so we get into this section, and I want you to realize there is a couple of Old Testament passages that I'm just going to draw your attention to that you can read on the side if you would like to uh, that that talk about this and that that are prophesying this specifically the way it's laid out in Revelation chapter 19. They are listed for us in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, we, we read this and there are bits and pieces of Isaiah 11 that parallel identical to what John sees in, in heaven in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Uh, and it's very exciting to read that. In fact, as you read uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you see that I, Revelation chapter 19 fulfills that prophecy. And it's just very interesting 
uh, reading for those who like to read it. So that's Isaiah chapter 11. If you get a chance to look at that, uh, it goes all the way through, and you, you will see. Well, it'll be obvious where to stop that. And so you, you realize that this is the return of Christ that is given to us uh, throughout all of the Scripture. And uh, Isaiah 63 is another one that parallels to this vision here in Revelation 19. And I just want to draw those to your attention just so you can have some Old Testament reading with it. And you can kind of read what, what Isaiah is saying, and then you can see the fulfillment as John sees it in Revelation chapter 19. But now remember that we've already seen bits and pieces of this. As this passage opens, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And so we see that uh, John sees something here, but he's already seen this. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, John looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, who having uh, had a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then down in verse 18, he takes that sickle, uh, and he was told to put it, to gather the clusters from the vines on the earth because the grapes are ripe. It tells us the angel swung a sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trotted outside the city. We see that in Revelation chapter 14. And the blood that is, is, uh, that is we see there it is uh, up to the uh, horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Uh, here's another blood-splattered scene where blood is, uh, is, is high on the height of a horse as, uh, as the Messiah himself tramples out the winepress of the wrath of God. Well, this is what's going to happen when he returns. And then we saw another a vision of, of this in chapter 16. I noted for you uh, when we hit that, that uh, verse 15, I'm coming like a thief, and when he comes, verse 16 of that says, they will gather them together in a place called Armageddon, so now we come to that scene, which has been anticipated by Isaiah, anticipated as well by John in the book of Revelation, even in uh, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16. We've seen all of that. Uh, and so the te this text that I've just read to you in Revelation 19 has all been anticipated. Now we come into the actual event in its chronological sequence, uh, followed by chapter 20 of the establishment of the kingdom uh, that we're going to uh, take a look at. So as we open this passage, uh, it is a tremendous passage. I don't want to rush through it. Sometimes I feel like I've got to just talk faster and faster just to get in as much material as I possibly can. But I know I don't have to do that. I can actually relax, <laughs> which is what my wife says sometimes. Just slow down, and I, I find that hard to do. But let's look at this as we open the verse First verse, walk with me through this. Verse 11 of Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I think we could write a couple of papers on that. We could do several sermons on that again. Uh, for another time in the book of Revelation, heaven is opened. We've seen that several different times. And we're going to see a glorious glimpse of heaven and a glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's very different than the one we saw in chapter 1 where he was ministering to his church. Uh, here he is obviously coming in fiery, flaming vengeance. He is coming with the sword of judgment. He is coming with the blood-splattered garments. That, or This is the point, really, of his return. 
It is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus himself, as I had mentioned earlier. He spoke about this in his own words, specifically in Matthew chapter 24, where he said in verse 27, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the truth of the, I mean, of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It will be time of a great carnage immediately after the tribulation. Uh, it'll happen. And, and that in itself is important. It's immediately after the tribulation. Then the passage goes on to read, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. In other words, the whole universe goes pitch black. And you can see that happening as part of the bold judgment in Revelation chapter 16. And I used to think, well, why and how are people going to be able to handle this This judgment of blackness upon the earth and then out of that blackness in the midst of the blackness coming through the blackness this passage in Matthew 24 uh, following in verse 27 and then the sign of the son of man appears in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory he will send forth his angels with the great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky to the other. This is that which now is being described for us in Revelation 19. As the scene unfolds, man, we, we begin to focus on the majestic, the regal, the, the rider on this horse. Heaven is open to us and we see the white horse. And on the white horse, we see the rider. Uh, he's there. We see him. Uh, but I want to talk about the details here. They're important. The reason heaven is open this time is not to let us in and to see something. It's to let him out. It's opening up so that he can return to the earth. A number of times in the book of Revelation, heaven has been open, so we have, we have given, been given access to view inside of heaven. But this time, heaven is open, and out comes the Lord Jesus Christ to a black earth, Imagine now that glory, his glory is going to brighten the whole world from, that's going to awaken the world from its darkness, that judgment. You bet it's going to get the attention of the world. But verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I looked in the door standing open in heaven, the first verse in which I heard like this, the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. So the door of heaven was opened in chapter 4 so John could go in and see. And when John goes in to see, we get to see. Because John goes in to see and he writes back and this is what we're able to read, what he saw. Now this door is open so the Son of Man can come down to the earth. Jesus is the one who ascended to heaven. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. Uh, and we, we read about all of this. We talked about every bit of this and when we hit Revelation chapter 5. It is the whole picture of redemption and uh, seeing the, the Lamb uh, having the right to open the, the book. And then uh, the judgments begin in Revelation chapter 6 showing that no one had the right to open the sealed scroll and take possession except the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, the world was always going to belong to the usurper unless something else happened and something else did. Was there anyone who could take it back? And we saw that it was 
uh, when it says in Revelation chapter 5, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so we, we, we went through that. And, and that, too, is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 that we looked at. And everyone sang a new song, and so we, we, we know here that this is now ready for the earth to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this time, John doesn't see a lamb in the midst of the throne. Rather, like he saw in John chapter 5, I mean Revelation chapter 5. Rather, this time, he sees, according to verse 11, a white horse. This is not a lamb. This is the white horse, and riding on that white horse is the great conqueror, the Messiah himself, riding no longer on or the way he rode in uh, into Jerusalem when he rode in his earthly life, but now coming as a conqueror in the typical fashion. And let me mention something at this point. And, and this is what confuses so many people in the book of Revelation, so please spare me just a moment to say this. For some of you, it's just going to be uh, old news, but uh, we need to be reminded of this. That uh, Capture this, because this is important. Uh, what you have in the imagery here when you're writing this, when you read this, you, you can't tell what is actual symbol and what is reality. Uh, what you have in the imagery of this vision is the mingling of the symbol uh, and, and and the reality, and you have to comprehend that or you, you're not going to understand really the picture here. Uh, there is language here that is the expression of reality, and then there's language here that is the expression of symbol. Symbolism, of course, that symbol points to reality. People ask the question, does this mean there are real horses in heaven, for example? I've been asked that many times. And I've read other writers that say when they reach they read this that other people will say, well, this proves heaven is full of horses and it has a lot of white ones. Uh, but the answer is no, not any more than it means that when Jesus comes, he's actually going to have dangling off his head a whole lot of crowns. There has to be symbolism given to us here. Or that when he returns, he's actually going to have sticking right out of his mouth between his lips some kind of a sword or any more than it means that all who come with him are going to be riding on a myriad of white horses. But that's the way people look at this. They, they forget there is symbolism here. And so you have to understand that. Uh, there is nothing to indicate anywhere in Scripture that horses ever get glorified. But that is really what's being pictured here. Here we are with a glorified Savior who's coming back, and, they, uh, and people take this on a white horse, and the picture is that the horse is glorified. And then we in heaven are coming back with him, and we're glorified. We have glorified bodies, and that we must be riding glorified horses. That's why they're all pictured as white. But there's nothing anywhere in Scripture that tells us anything to that being true. There's a mixture here of symbol and reality. This is not necessarily actual reality any more than Jesus Christ, when he sets up his kingdom, is going to roam the earth with a huge iron stick in his hand, mashing people's skulls with it, and yet it says he will rule with a rod of iron. You have to understand that the symbolic language here expresses reality, but in itself it is symbolic of that reality. I don't know if I actually said that correctly. I'm hoping I did. But the symbol here, the majestic symbol that we could say here, is of a Roman conqueror coming back in triumphant procession He's coming to a great battle to triumph and to enter into the glory of the triumph. 
Uh, like any general who would be riding off to war, he would ride a white horse. He would come to the battle garb, uh, we would come to the battle wearing his garb, uh, leading this tremendous battle, troops as it were, and they would engage in war. And when the war was won, he would then come to Rome, or, uh, up the main street of Rome to the temple, uh, and there he would enter into the glory. And so the imagery is vivid. John sees Jesus no longer as a lamb. John sees Jesus as a conqueror coming to in triumph because of what has just happened. And you can, the more you read this, the more you see, man, there is no contest here. There is really not a battle here. Even though the battle of Armageddon is stopped and they are all thinking, according to what we read in Revelation chapter 16, they can think they're coming because they've been deceived by spirits and demons and Satan himself coming to fight God. If you can imagine such a thing, coming to fight God, and then when he bursts through the darkness and the, the heavens light up and declare and shout out the glory that is in front of them, do you think they can fight that? No, they can't fight that. So he is conquering that. And so you, you see that whole picture laid out for us when it says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war because everything he does is right. Everything he does is righteous. He comes as the conqueror. Now he comes as a warrior king. He's coming to destroy the wicked, to overthrow the Antichrist, to bind Satan, take control of the earth and the universe, and establish himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. The horses are symbolic. The sword out of his mouth is symbolic. The rod of iron is symbolic. The crowns are symbolic. But the coming is reality. Does that make sense? I certainly hope it does. I know the psalmist himself wrote of this event when he wrote, And thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Even the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, got a glimpse of this and speaks of the messianic rule to establish his eternal kingdom. And so... He's coming. He's coming out of the heavens. Scripture tells us he's coming in full glory. And we read that. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 24. Very vivid. Very clear. And when he comes, every eye will see him. I know that uh, one person uh, uh, has said to me. In fact, I think actually two or three have actually said it. I've heard it several times. That the fact that this scripture says when he comes, every eye will see him must mean that the world is flat. Because how could you every eye see him if he comes in one point of heaven? Well, you know, that's not for me to figure out. I just know that when it says every eye will see him, every eye will see him. The blazing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will come with such a startling reality from the darkness upon this world that everyone on the face of the earth will see him. Does that happen instantaneous? I don't know. I just believe that everyone will see him. He will come not only in glory, not only visibly, but he will come with vengeance to judge and to make war. And again, this is a, 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 a parallel to uh, the, um, this, this is the fulfillment of all the verses that we talked about in the scriptures. This is that fulfillment. But at this point, it would be good just to let you know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is a different event than the rapture. They are totally, totally different. 
you could take this. In fact, I have actually done a whole sermon on this, but there's nothing in this scenario that matches description of the rapture of the church in the New Testament. There are two scriptures in the New Testament that refer to the, the catching away of the rapture, uh, and then the, that is John chapter 14 indirectly relates to it, some say directly, and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, both of those describe the coming of the Lord for the church and the coming for the Lord for his beloved. But in this, we see this is not that. He's coming back with us. He's not coming for us. We're coming with him. And so with that in mind, I want you to uh, to realize that uh, I can't go any further. It is amazing. I'm going to have to stop. I knew I couldn't get too far, but uh, this is, uh, uh, we just seen just a, a bit of this, but this is just the way it's going to go through this uh, tremendous section. We'll cover us a lot more of the details next time. Uh, and so, again, uh, let me thank you for, for being here. Th- thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned because every week we're going to get deeper and deeper into this, and then we're going to begin looking at the kingdom that is coming. And boy, do I have a lot to say about the kingdom. So thank you for joining me today.